Hello and welcome to the Fremont Podcast with Seth and Novoretti. This is Stephen Robles, and we're in that post-Easter period. Hey, post. <laughs> and Brother Robles is back, y'all. Hey, hey welcome back. Excited yes. to have you back, welcome. man. It's good to be back. Welcome back to the land of the living. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's uh, a <laughs> that new life. Man, Easter season, you know, working at a church, it's, they, they joke it's a Super Bowl of, of church, but it really is. I mean, it's, uh, we had seven services over three days. I mean, literally thousands and thousands of people come out. It's always interesting, you know, that John B. Christ, for whatever we talk about him outside of his joking stuff, he yeah, has yeah. this video about, you know, pastors on Easter. He's like, who let the student intern trim the hedges? And like, <laughs> well, get that weird greeter out of the door. We need the A team over here. Like, oh, right? It's, that's funny. it's too real. <laughs> it's too real. It's, but it's fun. It's and y'all, fun. And y'all yeah. actually had uh, another campus that just opened a new building, We right? did. Y'all uh, had to move everything in, like. The week going into Easter? We had basically a two-week period to move from a strip mall campus setup to a permanent facility that Brother Seth's father really spearheaded building. And it's a beautiful building. And, you know, it's funny. If you just go to one of these services, it probably looks super smooth. Like you guys probably saw like. Oh, yeah, man. It was maybe without a hitch. No glitch in the matrix. It was great. But the hours preceding from the early (laughs) morning, it is pandemonium. (laughs) Phone calls, texts. I mean, we're calling each other. We live stream to this campus, and we have three live streams that go down simultaneously. I'm all about redundancy. We have one on a business frontier line, a second on a frontier consumer internet, and a spectrum. We pay for three different internets. Oh, wow. And we have three different pieces of hardware at our broadcast and receiving campus, like redundancy on redundancy. And we have gone over three years without ever dropping. Mm. Uh, our stream but our main stream was down sunday morning oh, oh wow and uh so we were scrambling know that. and our redundancy right no one would and our redundancies were brand new systems that i had installed that we had never used on a live service weekend yeah, yeah. so it was did it, it was did it work out though did it, kick it worked in? perfect it, yeah, it was great on. everything came through Love that redundancy that's, that's what <laughs> i appreciate every time we fly on a plane is listen, hey, that's give me right. them redundancies listen. but don't fly in that 737 right max. I, I mean that thing but uh, there's a saying I've heard on another podcast, three is two, two is one, and one is none. Meaning Ooh. if you only have one thing that is a critical piece of equipment, you basically have none because it's going to fail and you have none. If you have two, it's as if as you have one. Like you're flying by the seat of your pants. So you're like three is two. And I, from this use case in the church, I've seen that time and time again. The three is two, two is one, and one is none. Well, I think we can end the podcast right there. You know it's enough wisdom for the day. I'm going to apply that to all of life. Right? <laughs> I've seen that. Listen, we've run tracks before at live, and right. I've had oh. one, so I've had none many That's times yeah, where it's exactly. just cut off and right. has that. messed us up, man. It's been the worst. Right. So I'm trying to, I'm trying yeah. to build that in. That redundancy. There was one weekend we had Frontier, some construction guy, they like put up a fence on our main campus and cut the line for our frontier internet. And so we only had one, Um, but we still had that one. You know what I mean? And it was, again, another example. (laughs) Three is two, two is none, none, or two is one, one is none. But y'all made it, man. We made it. And it was a good weekend, right? It was. It was a good weekend. And again, thousands of people came. Yeah, man. And, um, you know, I think what we do on this podcast is important because a lot of people come Easter weekend. Yeah. You you got the CEOs. Christmas and Easter only, which is great. You came, you know what I mean? You came on Easter (laughs) and maybe you even, you know, heard the gospel message and now you say, all right, I want to follow Christ. I think the stuff that we're doing on this podcast is now the, the long sustaining information that as you hear things from the culture and news that we help unpack what you hear 
and yeah. you're bombarded with exactly. from celebrity culture and from everything else, from the yeah, news, man. and to think about it. So I, I do. I believe it's important work. Oh, no, for sure, man. And that's and it's a big topic today. It's a big so topic. Stay today. with us. Stay with us. Stay with us. For, and right yeah. before we jump into it, though, I know I've been um, telling you guys to do this course on the resurrection. It's still not too late. It's actually good timing. So I just want to encourage you, if you have not done this, please, please, please do it for your own benefit. Go to impact360courses.org. The link will be on the show notes and check out their course on the resurrection. Um, you know, I think I was thinking about that this weekend, even as I was listening to the services, I think people hear faith, you know, and they're just think in our modern understanding of that term in our culture, it's a leap into the dark with no right. good reason. And actually biblical faith is much more like confidence that's that you have in something that you have good reason to believe is actually true. Right. So it's more like, you know, you would go get a get a surgery or, you know, if you had to get brain surgery, for instance, <laughs> you'd want to find a doctor that was good, that you had, you know, multiple people, multiple witnesses saying this guy is, you know, he's good. I've, he's done it for me. It worked and it's great. Right. And here's his stats. And, you know, then you can confidently get in the chair, you know, rather than just like some blind leap, you're driving down the street and yeah, man, I do brain surgery. <laughs> you know, that's, truck. that's yeah. not the, uh, that's not the, that's not the way the Bible talks about faith. Hmm. And so I think for me, one of the biggest bolsters to my, and I actually like to use uh, the word God confidence. Hmm. Um, the, one of the greatest bolsters to me and my God confidence, the Christianity is actually true, is was studying the evidence for the resurrection in depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it will give you really just that confidence to sit in that chair and say, man, this, I can base my life on this because this is the cen- center of the Christian faith is that Jesus rose to new life. And so we will rise to new life. New creation right. has begun and we can join him in his kingdom. So check that out when you get a chance. So today though, we're going to jump into, you know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to even give it a title cause mm-hmm. There's so many things we're going to try to cover that we're going to see which one we land on the most. But I, that's good. I, you know, I want to basically today for our listeners, we're, we're just going to have a conversation about some stuff that Nerva and I've really been diving into probably the last six months. Um, you know, I heard my, my, my friend uh, went to this Christian conference at a, actually at a Christian university that I love, mm-hmm. so I won't mention him by name, but. He, he called me, he started telling me about what was going to the conference and that he was concerned. He was like, man, I don't know what, what this stuff is that they were, that they were teaching, that they were kind of sharing. It made me feel weird. It's, it's kind of odd. And so I didn't know what to say to him at the time either. I thought it was kind of strange. Now, like fast forward, like maybe, I don't know, eight months or so, I've discovered that what they were doing was trying to teach critical theory. Wow. in a Christian context. I didn't know what that was back then. And so that kind of threw me into this phase. I had studied um, epistemology and I'd studied postmodernism and modernism and all those things, but I hadn't, I hadn't understood how it got connected to critical theory or cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call it, um, until this past six months. So we're just going to take you guys on this, on a little bit of this journey we're on. Mm-hmm. We're still on it. We're still trying to pull all these threads together but I'm um, I'm hoping this will start to make sense of what we are all experiencing in our culture for you as it has for me as well. And I think maybe to start, you said a couple words there. I know you guys talked about cultural Marxism, and there was a great video with uh, Vadi Bachman 
yeah, yeah. that you guys put, but you just said epistemology. Yeah. They have a feeling that word is going to come up. Can yeah. you define when we say epistemology, what do we mean by Thank that? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's basically the study of knowledge or it's the field of philosophy that deals with what kinds of things do we know and how do we know them? And then what is knowledge itself? Right. And so a, a classical definition might be what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. Yes. So, and it leads all, and truth is one of those things yes. that would fit into epistemology. How do we know something is true? Yeah. Okay. That's exactly go. right. So, and, and, you know, it would be worth it to just have, well, you could do, you know, a hundred podcasts on epistemology because <laughs> right. you can, like anything else, you can go really, really deep into it. But just for our listeners real quickly, when we say truth, we're saying a statement or a belief, a proposition that corresponds with reality. Right. So, you know, if you if you say that snow is white, and in fact snow is white, then that stu- that statement is true. Right. If you say snow is green, but in fact snow is white, then that statement is not true not or true. False. false. So, right. you know what what distinguishes knowledge from guessing right? Because you could guess, let's say, you know, you randomly somebody asks you what time it is, and you just guess, and it happens to be right. Well, we would say you didn't know. That what time it was, but you guessed the right time. Right. But if you were to walk over to a clock that you knew was reliable and you read it and you said it's such and such time and it was true, that case, what was that thing that made it different from a guess? It was the justification of seeing what time it was mm-hmm. based on the clock. So that's the element that separates guessing from knowledge. Right. And that, you know, that gets really, really complicated in some cases, but that's, you know, basically a... So knowledge involves some kind of interaction of something coming to the truth. It's a process. Yeah, it's, it's, it involves the way you come to, I say, know that truth or the way you become aware of that you truth. Or discover. Okay. Is that discover. a fair right. word to say? Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. That justification yeah. element, or sometimes it's called warrant these, mm. these days. And I know Ravi Zacharias, when he talks about worldview, he always mentions correspondence and coherence, meaning is it consistent within itself? Is it yeah. coherent? And does it correspond to reality? Like, is the yep. snow white that we see? Yep, exactly. And so, you know, knowledge is going to be a big thing. It's one of those basic fields of philosophy alongside of what's, you know, well, I don't even get into that, but metaphysics yeah. and axiology, and we could touch on those at a different time, but it's one of the big three as it's called. Right. And one of the things, you know, you were just talking about evidence for the resurrection. I just watched yeah. a debate on YouTube between a pastor and an atheist. Unfortunately, I feel like the pastor did a poor job of defending the resurrection. He was yeah. trying to use some of the Gary Habermas, uh, minimal facts, approach. the minimal facts approach, but the atheist kept saying, you are just saying claims yeah. of what these disciples saw and all that. These are all just claims. These are not evidence. This is not truth. And yeah. I think that's one of the constant battles we fight because we look to Scripture because of its historical accuracy. Again, yeah. we did not. there was no Bible that existed in the first century. There were documents written about these things and all that. But I think there's that push and pull of you're just claiming something. You actually yeah. have no evidence for it. Yeah. And that push and pull of, well, what is truth if we don't? You know, right. have something. Yeah, and I ha- I haven't seen. Sorry, babe. What were you gonna say? Which goes back to the definition of faith, having a reason for the confidence, and so I think that's one of the things that pastors do weekly is to give people reason yeah. for the confidence we have in the faith. It's not just okay. This is something people made up years ago, and we just abide by it, and we just kind of feel good when we read it. But sometimes when I come to the word, I have to remind myself. 
this is actual history. This yeah. is things that happen yeah. and this been recorded so that I can continue to have confidence yeah. in what I believe. Yeah, no, that's good. That's true. And I haven't seen the the debate you're talking about, you know, and it sounds like from the guy's responses that he doesn't understand the nature of what historical evidence is. Right, which is, it was funny because he would quote Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato. Right. And the amount of evidence we have for even those people existing in the manuscripts that we have to work off of their writings, there's actually more accuracy to be found in the New Testament documents right. than theirs. And so my question would have been, how do you know something from the first century is true? Right. At all. Ooh. You know, let alone yeah. biblical accounts. But or anything or anything about the, you know, the founding of this nation <laughs> right. or 50 years ago or a day ago. Basically, yeah. right. we don't, you know, <laughs> yeah. and that, that just shows you when you're, when you're dealing with knowledge, the justification element, it, it depends on the, the nature of the subject you're addressing. So right. if I'm looking for mathematical knowledge, you know, in a, in a case of addition, I'm going to have to use reason. Uh, just, you know, the, something that's in my own head and, and kind of test it out that way. If I'm looking for history, I'm looking for primary source documents. Right. And saying which which of these documents, you know, are reliable. And then you cross test them Would they have different um, criteria that they use to see right. if so, if something passes the test that we can have confidence that this actually took place. You know, and I, eyewitness testimony. Um, right. Enemy testimony when when somebody that writes about you know, something they wouldn't want to be true, but they, they admit it's true anyways. You, you know, like right. when CNN actually says something good about Trump, <laughs> <laughs> you could pretty much take it to the bank, yeah. you know? Right. So it's like, right. but there are different ways of, sense. so you have to ask yeah. what, what is the nature? I mean, we're getting yeah. kind of off topic and far Sorry. into epistemology here, but that, you know, that is what we're, what you're going to be dealing with is, you know, is this, is this inductive science where we can go into the mm-hmm. lab is a historical science where we're looking at, you know, fossils and all these different types right. of things will have to do with whether or not in a given case you actually have knowledge or you may approach knowledge like, yeah, we're, you know, we're 70, 30 or we're right. just guessing here. And, and those are the distinctions you want to make in each case. Right. What I want to talk about a little bit today, those, um, we used to talk about this in sub 30. You'll remember this, uh, mm-hmm. Steven and Nerva, but, um, I got this from J.P. Moreland's book, uh, The Kingdom Triangle, mm-hmm. and he would talk about the fact that there's a three-way worldview struggle going on in our culture today. Um, and of course, there's more than that, but he he said, in his view, the especially in the universities, there were three primary worldviews that were struggling for for allegiance, um, and they were, you know, Christian theism on the one hand, uh, on the second one was what he called modernism or scientific naturalism, mm-hmm. where basically the only thing that exists is, uh, the, the material universe or multiverse. Um, the bottom of all reality is just kind of either string theory or molecules in motion, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. And the, the grand Darwinian story of big bang, um, the goo to you via the zoo kind of kind of deal. So that's scientific naturalism. Right. And the third one though was postmodernism, and we'll talk a little bit about that more later. The weird thing is, I don't know if you noticed this too, Stephen, but probably, I don't know, maybe in the years right after nine eleven, let's mm-hmm. say the five years following that, it seemed like the new atheism was the primary thing that was com- becoming popular and in, in going head to head with Christianity. Yes. I get the sense lately that I don't see these guys around as much. Mm. I don't hear much from true. Richard Dawkins, like no. even right. Sam Harris. I mean, You're Christopher right. Hitchens actually passed, but um, 
you know, I just don't get the the feeling that they're on the forefront. I don't know if the media is just not covering them as much or what's going on. But I saw this uh, Reasonable Faith podcast pop up the mm-hmm. other day, and it said, is the new atheism dead? Right. Or something like that. Right. And I haven't listened to it yet. I'm, it's on yeah. my to listen to this weekend. But I suspect, I, I wonder where it's gone. And I feel like at the time, postmodernism seemed like kind of a funny little side thing that right. – you're like, ah, maybe, you know, I get it, JP, but I don't see that much in, happening mm-hmm. in, in the culture. Now I think it's the primary yes. contender. Um, it's the voice. And I'm wondering, we listened to something this week where they said a secularist view, which would be kind of the scientific naturalist view of reality, it has AIDS. And he said it's, it has autoimmune deficiency, like it eats itself. Yeah. In, in other words, wow. yeah. it can't sustain itself in the long haul because human beings were made to have purpose right and to have meaning that transcends life and what scientific naturalism tends to do is eat away at that mm, that's good yeah. and we were talking about you were talking about that yesterday um just the fact of people don't seem you know for a while they would start when they would buy into it they would lose increasingly meaning right and i think now postmodernism we're going to talk about the particular way but i think it's wedded itself to cultural marxism or critical theory yeah in such a way as to provide meaning and that's why (laughs) it's really taken off in the past um eight years or whatever because you can be raised to a cause via critical theory and postmodernism absolutely where you have an oppressor group or again all the way back to coney 2012 i remember just such a such a groundswell of people just wanting to get behind something. Yeah. And like you were saying, a new atheist like Dawkins in his book says everything is just blind, pitiless indifference. Yeah. And again, if you're a consistent atheist, then yeah, nothing has purpose yeah. and meaning. And so that's a great way to say that. Yeah. It eats itself because no yeah. one wants, no one wants that. And I think on a deeper level, no one believes that. Right. No one believes that we're all that's just true. here for no reason at all. Right. We should just be completely whatever, unless you're a hedonist, Yeah, yeah. you know, just self pleasure. <laughs> right. But I don't think that's as, as popular in culture today because right. people want to get behind something, whether that's a group that's being oppressed or sure. something that they can give to or feel like they have a part in bettering. I definitely yeah, yeah. see that on a lot of the college campuses where you see a lot of young people who maybe in their upbringing have been robbed of that bigger meaning, that purpose. And so when they find a cause and they, they study a little bit of history that might be swayed a certain way, they jump on the cause of, hey, this is wrong. Yeah. Let's fix this. Let's yeah, yeah. let's join mm-hmm. together. Let's right. join forces and yeah. fix this. And so I'm seeing that a lot. No, you're right. And part of being human is to have is is I would say, you know, God wired us that way, of course. Right. Um but I think that's that's so true. And so in a sense, I think this new atheism created a vacuum. Mm. And now mm. it's sucking the next thing into it, which is this postmodern critical theory. And yeah. it gives us, and, and that's why you see such religious zeal attached to this, even for people who don't believe in God. Right. They are, I mean, I've never seen, like the stuff we've seen yeah. in politics these last right. four or five years and the craziness, the the way that people are like, almost like, I don't know, you see them on the- They're on dogmatic. The, yeah. Oh man. About what yeah. they That's are. an understatement. Like. Right. Like I haven't, like I've been in the woods and I've seen some Pentecostal <laughs> church <laughs> services. <laughs> and listen, these yeah. guys, the like the snake handlers don't compare yeah. to the zeal Passion, of these yeah. people, man. Right, they like, right. they look absolutely nuts yeah. at times. <laughs> and so anyways, that, that's, that's, that's one of the oddities that that we're seeing going on. 
And I think this is a this is a weird part as I think there's such indoctrination going on in our nation. And right. you know, some people have termed this out. They they say a culture is basically created by these seven spheres or seven, seven mountains. mountains. Like yes, yeah. people have talked about it in different ways. And you can even make it more or less, but I think it's right. a good rubric to use because it's valuable. You know, the the first mountain or sphere would be the church. The second one is family. Um, the third one is, I think, business. Not in any particular order, but business, um, education, the arts and entertainment, which would include like Hollywood, um, you know, Netflix, sports, all that stuff, music. Um, also, media news. Yeah, yeah, media. And then government. And then government. Okay. So those are typically, you know, how it's cashed out. And we can see that, um, man, I'm, I mean, everything you see these days on the media, the mainstream media, or, mm-hmm. you know, i.e. the fake news. <laughs> but, the flake news. The flake news, right. <laughs> but it's basically they are pushing a narrative. And the mm-hmm. narrative just is critical theory. Like mm-hmm. that, that is what's being taught. And, you know, and everything from believe the victim, believe women, this is sure. all connected Ooh. to critical theory. Uh, we see that in our in our movies, like you know everything, all the uh, the ones probably that uh, were competing. I think this year for um, for the Oscars for the Oscars, yeah, almost. I think all of them except for maybe the one Vice were le- were interwoven with critical theory ideas. Hmm. Um, so everything being pushed, you know, let's. I think education though is one that's been has been eaten up with it for a long time. So this is what I want you to do. If you're listening, please, we're going to link this again. Let's link that Vody Bauckham cultural Marxism one. I want you to go and listen to that. Cause he tells about the history of how this ideology made its way from Germany and Italy into America, uh, via the Frankfurt school. And it'll be interesting to see how this connects and how this became popular in our universities. Um, but Nerva and I, we recently watched uh, two movies this week, right? Mm-hmm. Yep that I would highly recommend. We'll maybe we'll link this too, but one of them was called this free speech apocalypse. It's on Amazon prime for free. If you're a prime member, Hey, yo, maybe you get an Amazon sponsorship <laughs> right. as long as I don't listen to the Amazon. podcast. Right, right. Um, but, uh, the, uh, the second one was a, was a film called indoctrinate you. And I don't think the second one was even made by any Christian organization, but they were talking about, they were going through the universities and how, politicized it is um from a leftist point of view Mm. and they were talking about um the statistics of how many professors in these universities are have that leaning and then they did a study because the professors were claiming well we have that leaning but we don't you know we we keep it outside of the classroom and they did a they did research on that and find out no they did not keep it outside the classroom and in fact it's like written into the very um, curriculum curriculum and the material they do. Most of the students felt like if they were conservative, they couldn't even express their point of views without getting marked down in grades, ostracized. Uh, a, few, a few of the stories on there are even more extreme. Even like even how the professors at the beginning of the semester had to express how they were going to influence the students and put this into the curriculum, even if it had nothing to do with politics. Yeah, so in, <laughs> in, in one of the school, I think it was, was a polytech or polycal or something mm-hmm. they had written in like when you submit your initial lesson yes. plans <laughs> for a class you had to write in your lesson plans how this was going to speak to issues of race class and gender 
and he mm. said even in like in physics class. classes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's crazy. And so that that shows yeah. the level to which critical theory. And again, if you're hearing this term, you're not familiar. You can go back to our. We have two parts with Neil Shinvey on critical theory where we discuss this. Another recent one with Neil, and then the the Vody Bakum uh, message. It'll get. It'll help you understand it, but. Basically, you know, I began looking into this after my friend and and so I I really became aware of all this literature out there and I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting." I I, th- I thought in my own mind, I said, "That's really the way they do epistemology, the way they do knowledge so ties into postmodernism." Mm-hmm. And what I, what do I mean by that? Well, basically, whenever someone would bring a like an argument against critical theorists, they would knock down the argument, one, by just name calling. So they would okay. resort to ad hominem, it's called. So they would say, well, you're, you're only saying that because you're a racist hmm. or because you're a bigot or because you're xenophobic. So they rarely engage with the argument. I think part of that is because they don't have good arguments. Hmm. But there was actually a deeper reason, I think, in this, and the reason is, is they don't think arguments themselves lead to truth. Mm, right. In other wow. words, argumentation, reason, truth, the things that Western civilization took to be um, in the realm of epistemology that actually leads to real objective knowledge. Postmodernists came through and said there is no real objective knowledge. Right. Uh, reality is a, they had different ways of cashing out, but the, one of the typical ones was reality is a social construct. In other words, our culture basically constructs reality for us mentally and then we play this word game within that and whatever mm-hmm. passes for argument we allow and we call that knowledge but it doesn't really tell us anything about the real world and for someone who doesn't know when we say an argument it also doesn't mean arguing back and forth right but something it's like can, William Lane Craig is great at is you know two premises that maybe lead to a conclusion you know, Western civilization took it to be that we had minds that were wired such as when you argue properly, it leads to truth and gives you the grounds for knowledge. Postmodernism comes along and says, no, no, no. Why do we, why do we assume that our minds match reality? Mm-hmm. We are just basically, you know, trapped. We're trapped inside our minds. We can never get outside of it. And then they take the further step usually that says any use of reason is just an attempt by people for a power grab to dominate others. Mm-hmm. And that's how this, this, this whole um, realm of, of epistemology got picked up by critical theorists and used as a weapon because if you pick up that, what does that mean you can do to any argument that comes toward you? Just shut it down. You could dismiss it, right? Yeah, in the mm-hmm. name of liberation, you just yeah. reject it and say, that's oppressive. Yeah, yeah. How did you come to that anyway? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, They'll they'll still argue for their positions at times. They'll say, you know, this is, in other words, they'll appeal to history to ground their idea that we live in an oppressive society. Mm-hmm. And that's an argument. You know, they're given an argument for that. Okay. So they're inconsistent in that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a thoroughgoing postmodernist, I mean, it's tough because you can't really be a thoroughgoing postmodernist because the the moment you give an argument for postmodernism, you've shown that you believe arguments can give you insight into truth. And so you've you've been self-refuting. And the whole aim is to highlight oppressors versus oppressed. Yes. So I think argument is that the whole aim pretty much. Well, I mean, I guess for the critical theorists, they're going to try, they're trying to argue for this, you know, first the narrative and then second, the United States in particular, 
Western civilization in general is this great uh, force of white supremacy that we need to overthrow, including capitalism, oftentimes including the Christian Judeo framework, oh, yeah. all these types of things. That's Their goal is different, but in order to create a utopian society where sameness across the board, equality, not of opportunity, but equality of outcome, um, so that everybody's the same. You know, similar... Right goal point is Marx. That's why it's called cultural Marxism because gotcha. it comes through the cultural element of oppress and oppressor dynamics rather than the economic of the working class and the owners or the proletariat and the bourgeoisie or whatever. So that, that, that's what I began to see is this, they co-opted the postmodern epistemology and kind of utilized people like Rousseau, Foucault, Derrida, mm. uh, Richard Rorty. These are kind of the, the I don't know they're not founding fathers. The headliners, yeah. yeah, they're like leading the, strategists. The, yeah, the leading strategists contributors to postmodernism. This idea is really connected to the French Revolution, which again, uh, Os Guinness, for instance, in a book called Last Call for Liberty, hmm. he really uh, talks about the revolu- the American Revolution of 1776 versus the French Revolution of 1789. And the 1789 revolution is very much in line with postmodern thought and critical theory. And that's why he says it was unable to sustain freedom. They could only overthrow, but they couldn't create a sustained freedom. Hmm. Whereas the American revolution, because it was grounded in Judeo-Christian principles, it was not a, only able to get freedom from, but it was able to create freedom to, hmm. and the freedom that sustains. And basically, he hmm. said there's a triangle he calls the golden triangle of freedom or something like that, where he says freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom, which Mm. requires virtue, which requires faith. In other words, he said, you can't have freedom. And this is what many of the founders understood, like John Adams, uh, George Washington, many of these guys wrote on this. You can't have freedom if you don't have virtue as a nation, Mm. including epistemic virtue. That is the ability to look at things objectively and weigh them out based on principles that are outside of your own desires and thoughts and power grabs. But it also includes honesty, integrity, Mm -hmm. civility, all these elements, virtues. (laughs) And in order to have virtues, they said, they don't develop out of thin air. They come from what? Faith. Faith, wow. Mm. And they didn't necessarily restrict faith to the Christian faith, but they said it had to be some kind of transcendent source. And they thought that Christian was the best, mm-hmm. you know, of, of the available options. In other words, they were okay. The founding fathers, because they grounded, um, freedom of conscience and freedom of religion in, um, the Judeo Christian framework, they were okay with people being atheists and they would respect their dignity. Mm-hmm. But they said a society full of atheists, they were skeptical that they could maintain the fundamental principles needed to nourish mm-hmm. these freedoms that they laid out. And I think they're right about that because that worldview, again, it's going to suck in another worldview in its place. And every worldview then is going to root, give root to whatever their ultimate values are. And the ultimate values will be used to create the laws. So that's why Neil said critical theory, because it's a worldview, worldviews don't play nice together. It's a worldview that doesn't agree with Christianity. So now what we're doing, what we're in danger of is we are being indoctrinated by these seven spheres. And even the church mountain or whatever, insofar as it pulls in these other worldviews, it's indoctrinating people in the wrong way as well. Mm. We have to start there 
and craft a biblical understanding in order to affect these other mountains. But we've largely abdicated these other mountains. We've, we've pulled out of education and sometimes we've had to, we've pulled out of government. Sometimes we've had to, Mm. but I think one of the things that God is calling us back to is to get people in these realms that are going to have a biblical worldview and a Mm. biblical perspective to take some ground back and to have no, not just hand over the culture. Basically I we just heard this the other day, babe, and I thought this was good. They said the, a, a, the cult, the surrounding culture is the church's report card. Oh my, yes, it did. <laughs> That's good. Right? Wow. And so, again, freedom requires virtue, which requires faith. And here's the deep part, but faith, in order to have faith, and you can look at North Korea as an example, hmm. requires freedom. Right. That makes sense. And so that's why in this culture right now, with there being such a, there's actually an attack on freedom where we are handing our liberty away in the name hmm. of trying to care for the oppressed. Ooh. Break that down. We're handing our freedom away <laughs> yep. in the name. So one of the primary freedoms, and that's why it was the first freedom in the Bill of Rights, right? was what? Freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Right. Okay. Now, what's the importance of freedom of speech? I guess you arrive at knowledge through thought and conversation and expressing yourself. Yeah, that process yeah, is yeah. needed to it's good. Yeah. the importance of freedom of speech, you said? Yeah, yeah. I would, I would yeah. think without free speech, you could not speak out against atrocity yeah. or sure. oppression, <laughs> Yeah. ironically enough, or to say this is not right. Yeah. No, I think both of those are great points. That's, and uh, Wayne Grudem in his book, Politics, he actually has a, a whole chapter dedicated to freedom of speech. And just real quickly, I want to list off, he, he lists five things. He says, one, to prevent the, the abuse of power by government. Okay. Mm. Um, and that's, what, that's one of the things the founders understood. And that's why they wrote that in there, because they had experienced a, you know, what tyranny can do. And, right. and when they start to shut down, we see that that's always the step. Um, when you see like Hitler, I don't know if you ever saw that movie, Steven, uh, was it Sophie Scholl's babe? The one with the girl, she goes and throws the paper and they're basically, uh, they were trying to get this literature out <clears throat> and they, they, one day they started putting it in all the universities. They found the girl and they beheaded her. She was like mm. 20 or early twenties or late teens and, and all her other, you know, co conspirators <laughs> from their right. point of view but it was just they were exposing the tyranny of the the um german government under hitler mm. and these words they still maintain were the seed that started the resistance that eventually helped to you know help the other nations overcome right mm. um germany and so that's that's an example of how ideas if you don't have freedom, like it was so hard for them to be able to, and that's part of the reason all, a lot of these totalitarian governments from the 20th century were able to just have the, you know, kill right. people like they did and become these massive, awful okay. forces of evil. And yeah, the first amendment was actually directed at government that they would not interfere. Yes, that they would not with, interfere. And there's a religion whole or thing. speech. Mm. I always thought of it differently until right. I read it. I was like, Oh, okay. So the government yeah. will be hands off. Yep. There will be a freedom. They will not um, implement laws that hinder this freedom. And I think in the 21st century, that even applies more to access to information. Whereas you look at something like the Chinese government who 
sometimes restricts access yeah. to full yeah. things of the internet or news. Sure. Yep. And sure. again, even North Korea too, but that you cannot even read something that you might want to yep. because the Chinese government has, you cannot access it from the internet. You know? For sure. It's for sure. very different than here in America where you can go wherever yeah, you want on the internet pretty much. But yeah, yeah. there they can restrict whole services, whole websites, whole whatever for to sure. the entire nation, yeah. which is a billion people. Yeah, man, so. it's crazy. So to prevent the abuse of power by government, and, and this is why uh, Grudem says they understood the tendency to sin in the heart of every human being. This is what the fathers, founding fathers understood, rooted in Christianity. They understood the constant temptation to misuse power of government rulership for selfish purposes over the governed. Hmm. And they also... Um, they also understood that it helps hold government accountable to the people and allows us to criticize the government when we see something going wrong. Hmm. If you don't have that, like in China, you know, you just, it's stamped out. So to prevent the abuse of power by government, to enable the government to be chosen by the people, to protect human liberty or freedom, to protect religious speech, and to protect the ability of individuals to think and decide issues for themselves. Okay. Because if you can't present, we've all been in like segments where it's like a subculture that has basically isolated themselves from any other knowledge outside of their own ideology and yeah. how distorted it gets. So imagine the government forcibly doing that to where they mm. brainwash. And that's how they've, you know, that's how they've brainwashed people in other countries and, and basically conform them to whatever they want them to be and think and do. Mm. And, you know, the, the issue right now is with critical theory combined with postmodernism, at least the epistemological element, they have been able to encroach on free speech increasingly. Mm. And they, because they've defined basically things as hate speech. Right. And they've, they're broadening and broadening that definition so much so that now to be an orthodox Christian and to say what Christianity says about basic issues is hate speech according to them right and they've put these hate speech codes in universities right, right. and then uh nerva was actually reading a book uh i forget what's it called uh explaining postmodernism by stephen rc hicks and i don't think he's a uh i don't think he's a believer i don't even think he's a necessarily conservative politically or anything like that. He's actually a professor of philosophy at a school in Michigan, but he wrote this book and he has this chapter on free speech and postmodernism at the end. And he basically mm -hmm. is saying the same thing in this book. He actually catalogs the history of postmodernism, starting back in his view in Immanuel Kant, mm -hmm. moving forward all the way to this present movie. He said it was co-opted by political extreme leftists in order to uh, basically indoctrinate people in the university mm. for their point of view. And mm. they have moved to such a place with this hate speech thing that if you watch that movie, we talk about the apocalypse, the free speech apocalypse, you'll see this guy was speaking on sexuality, the design of sexuality from a Christian perspective. And these students were going nuts, mm. like absolutely crazy. And this was like 10 years ago. Wow. We've since seen that with just a recent attack of there's a conservative named Michael Knowles. He was attacked at a university or something with some spray just, uh, I think, a couple weeks ago. Mm. Ben Shapiro, you know, they try to de-invite him all the time. Jordan Peterson was just de-invited from, Cambridge, um, uninvited from Cambridge University because mm. they don't like his political views. And they, they, wow. they basically cash him out as a homophobic, bigoted 
um, hateful guy. But if you if you know his material, because we've read his books, we've listened to him speak, it's it's nothing like that. But they keep broadening the definition of hate. Now it includes anybody, not only Christians, but anybody who's politically conservative. And that's really interesting because you're talking about 50% of a population now is defined according to this terminology where they are not allowed to speak publicly in the universities. Wow. And that's just something to watch because that's a, that's a dangerous place yeah. um, we are getting to. And people really need to be aware of that. Um, you don't want that going on e- on either side. Like if it's conservative right. or liberals, you, you don't want free speech being encroached upon by this extended definition of hate speech. Mm. Yeah, here's a, uh, one of the paragraphs. Um, I think this is from the University of Michigan. Um, he said, speech code is any particular behavior, verbal or physical, that stigmatizes or victimizes any individual on the base of race, ethnicity, religion, sex, sexual orientation, creed, um, national origin, uh, age, marital status, handicapped, and so on. But, you know, at first glance, you hear that and you go, you know, that's that's a great idea. But the thing is now, if you say anything that opposes someone's idea, then you're quote unquote victimizing them. Yeah. And you break that speech code. Right. And so any mm. anything that speaks uh, from even from a moral place, yeah. from a place of virtue or faith you are automatically breaking these speech codes. So that's interesting because a college campus should be a place where the freedom to think creatively, that environment should be safe enough where you can discuss these kinds of ideas. Right. But the minute you say anything that opposes hmm. another person's idea, you have broken the speech code. Yep. And, and that's part that. of the yep. second interesting move is they've collapsed the distinction between speech and violence. So now... Hmm. If you are speaking in a way that offends someone, you are actually committing a violent act against them. Right. This sounds conspiratorial. It does, but I promise it's real. <laughs> it is going on, man. Like people yeah. do not realize this stuff is happening every day in our universities, like our right. universities. And this is what Ryan Bomberger experienced. Yeah. Right. When he college. went to speak at a university. So and he was guest on this show so you can go look back and listen to his episode and hear his firsthand account yeah of what it was like and that was a in the second the the christian was a christian university exactly <laughs> christian and that's happened this that's interesting too i um i don't know if i can even pull it up real quick i don't know if you saw this Stephen. mike pence spoke at taylor university for their commencement speech there was a there was a article titled don't be shocked when many quote-unquote christians cheer the criminalization of christianity because I th- if this article's right, I think it was actually, it says a uh, Christian institution located in Upland, Indiana. Let's see if I can find one of the quotes here. It was, a, I guess, a lady named Claire Hadley. She said, I have never been made to feel so physically ill by an email before. I guess when she got the email that he was going to be the commencement speaker. Right. Um, Taylor University, you should be ashamed of yourselves. I am physically shaking. The fact that the school who claims to love and support me in each of its students and alum would invite such a vile individual to speak on the most important day of the year. Wow. And then Austin Linder said, the fact that Taylor would invite Pence as a speaker honestly kills me a little bit. I can't imagine what it feels like for LGBT students to have to see this man's harmful bull to be honored on the Taylor stage. Really disgusting stuff, Taylor. Really ashamed to be an alum right now. That's me. And the Washington Post had an article too. We'll link to these, but 
it's interesting that the students to Pence will say, that's not my Jesus. Like that's not right. the Jesus that I believe, which I think lends itself into like yeah. this postmodern thinking that for some reason there is a, maybe a different Jesus right, right, right. <laughs> that Pence is ascribing to. Yeah. That. Yeah. It's interesting the way they put it, right? That's not, right. Instead of saying you don't have the right Jesus. Like instead right. of saying, you know, your, your understanding of Jesus is wrong. Well, that's not my Jesus. But then they right. kind of slip in that their Jesus is the real Jesus. So it becomes this right. confusing mass of equivocation. But it's just like the interesting lingo yeah. that yeah. the students have adopted because it is almost like they don't want to appear as hateful towards Pence. Right. So the, the verbiage is, well, that's not my Jesus. You know, yeah, that's yeah. not my Christianity. Right. So anyway, it's interesting. Yeah, man. And what's funny is this this over-emotional, physical shaking at the thought of someone with a different idea than you right. expressing themselves on campus, I think, has and become... On campus. On campus. <laughs> like. You know, it, it used to be as easy as, you know, if something was on TV that you didn't like, you flip the channel. You know, words have become, like you said, as harmful as being hit with a bat. Yeah. You Which know. I doubt that these students would sit in a science class and if they had a preconceived idea of how breathing oxygen works right. and so all of a sudden the teacher if suddenly explained it and it was different, yeah. I don't think they would physically shake and feel offended right. that sure. this idea was different than theirs, well, yeah. but is more true. Yeah. And I think what you're pointing <laughs> out is there might still be some scientism floating through the air that, right. that you know, the, era, the, the realm of morality is not the right. realm. But then again, they do think there are moral oughts because they think he ought not be there. So it's, it's really, ah, that's good. it's exactly. really confused. Like it, it really, it can't, it's incoherent. Is it's incoherent. What it is. It's that's inconsistent what, too. That's what uh Ravi points out. That's why, right. that's one of the reasons why that worldview is not just false. It can't possibly be true because it right. doesn't even cohere to itself. Right. And I think um, even trying to understand it coherently It'll just you'll you'll be in knots. You'll be playing. What's that game where you're left hand on the red oh, spot? Yeah. Oh, twister. twister. Yeah, yeah. Twister. it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like twelve dimensional twister. Right. Is this what we should expect in your? I don't know. Pontificating, Seth. Like if we pontificating. If pontific Yay. if we dismiss the new atheism, we are the culture is rejecting that because it can't find purpose, but it will not wholly accept biblical authority and historical Christianity. Is this what we would expect? It, it almost feels like a grasping at straws for purpose, for meaning, and for morality. And we get this kind of muddled idea of what is right and wrong and no one wanting to say explicitly, this is right, this is wrong. I think if you didn't know anything about what's going on, you didn't know anything about history, you could see just ideologically how a godless modernism necessarily flows into postmodernism. Because mm -hmm. once you remove God, reason does fall. Right. Because if you don't have God, the idea that mindless, a mindless process working on molecules would develop the cognitive tools we need to get at a reality outside of ourselves becomes sort of just a a leap for the miraculous. Mm. And so I think that, and that's what was one of C.S. Lewis's arguments. There's a guy named Alvin Plantinga that's developed right. that argument in great depth. But the idea is if you lose God, you lose reason. Mm. And then you only, what do you have left? You have power. Mm. You have whoever, whoever power can basically the kill the other. Now, the, the odd part about critical theory is like, 
they've sort of trying to wed this Nietzschean power struggle with, well, we, we have this egalitarian idea. We want the world to be utopian. And I think that's another part of the human design is we do long for utopia. The right. Christians would say it is coming. <laughs> like Christ right. has risen right. and new creation, new heavens and new earth is coming. And we are seeing signs of that in the present, you know? Mm. Um, but we don't have the idea that we can get here in this old order especially on the basis of big government enforcing uh, equality across the board that really just can't happen. Like you can't get rid of a cultural hegemony. Mm. You'll just replace it with another one. So there is no, mm. there, this idea that there's some neutral zone we can create absolute sameness and get rid of gender, cons- you know, because right. postmodernism is driving that stuff as well. There is no male and female. It's social construct. There is no, right. Right. There is no marriage that's a social construct. We can define it any way we want. Right. It's really an attempt to be God, and that mm. never goes well, to, to rename right. reality, to redefine reality. But I want to, um, I know we've been going a little bit here, and we, throwing out a lot of stuff but I, I think this guy on this on this movie uh free speech apocalypse really wraps this idea of free speech up and i just want to play you guys this clip please uh please listen to it because it's so good man. it's gonna be so helpful here it is and I, uh it actually starts i left a little bit of where they're um yelling at him at the at the university just wow. so you can hear what they're saying they're saying we believe in free speech but this is hate speech Mm. And again, what they're calling hate speech, this guy isn't arguing for the, you know, the revival of the KKK. He's basically arguing for just a Christian ethic on sexuality. Well, here it is. verb to tolerate is a verb that requires a direct object. Everything, everything boils down not to whether you tolerate, but what you tolerate. And conversely, it also boils down to what you will not tolerate. Every society tolerates and every society refuses to tolerate. Every subculture tolerates some things and refuses to tolerate others. Every society, for example, keeps some things and throws other things away. So we're here at the here at the dump. This is the stuff that this society, this town, is throwing away. And there's a bunch of stuff in town that they're not throwing away. Everybody keeps stuff, and everybody throws stuff away. The only question before us is what do you keep and what do you throw away? What do you hang on to and what do you jettison? Our culture currently is is adopting, purchasing, bringing home, taking into their living rooms, a novel approach to marriage, family, uh, culture, society. They've got this new thing that they've set up in their homes. And because they are doing that, they are engaged in throwing away their Christian heritage, their Christian 
legacy. If you keep one thing, you have to throw another thing away and flip it around. Right? You, you can't keep everything. A society that kept everything is a, is a society that would be a dump. It would just be a random pile of things. You've got to sort, you've got to select, you've got to throw some, some things away and keep other things. Now, one of the things that people don't realize, and I'm sure this happens at the dump all the time, they throw things away and, and then later they realize that something that was precious to them is missing. Maybe it got, maybe it got dumped into the bag and maybe I accidentally, I lost my wedding ring or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and so they, they say, oh no, I threw something away that I didn't mean to throw away. Now, in our, in our time, in this era, we are self-consciously rejecting our explicit Christian heritage. What we're throwing away that we don't know that we're throwing away is our liberty. We're throwing away our liberty. We're throwing away our ability to speak freely. We're throwing away our, our right to free speech. We didn't know that that was in the garbage bag. We didn't know that we shook that off when we, when we brushed off all our Christian commitments. We didn't know that certain things were gonna go with it. So, uh, and this is of interest to, to non-Christians as well. Free speech, the liberty, liberty of conscience, having a right to uh, certain fundamental religious convictions, that right is a right that Christians developed. That came out of Christian societies. It, it's not something that just happened all by itself. If you look at the history of the world, where did the right to free speech uh, develop? Where, where has it been established, protected, and guarded for as long as it has been? Well, overwhelmingly in Christian societies. And that's why it's no accident when we are seeing this explicit rejection of the Christian faith. We are seeing almost simultaneously um, the jailing of county clerks who, who won't, uh, whose conscience forbids them to, to uh, issue a license. We've seen bakers fined $135,000 in the public sector, county clerk in the private sector, um, uh, florists, photographers, uh, videographers, um, bakers saying you must conform. So what they're doing, what, what's happening is we've adopted this new um, commitment to egalitarianism and same-sex mirage and then as an absolute necessity we are throwing away liberty of conscience, the right to free speech, and, and all these things that liberals claim are precious to them. Well I'm sorry, you can't take your chainsaw to the, to the orchard and then go out in the fall and ask where, where are my apples? The whole idea of liberty of conscience is a distinctively Christian development. When the, when the First Amendment was uh, established and put into the U.S. Constitution, that was America at that time was not a secularist society. It was overwhelmingly Christian, Protestant, and for the most part, Calvinistic. So basically, I would say what what you can expect if Christians are if Christians prevail in the future, you can expect largely what you got the first time. Liberty. Christians love liberty, and the foundation of that liberty was proclaimed, I think, at the very first uh, when the Lord Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. That's the foundation of liberty. Christ rose from the dead. If Christ rose from the dead, everything is transformed. If Christ didn't come back from the dead, then we're just a bunch of atoms colliding into each other, and and the strongest, uh, you know, the strongest at the top can 
squash people as it suits them, as it, as it fits with their notions of public order. If I'm not created in the image of God, certain things follow. If my atheist neighbor is not created in the image of God, certain things follow. And over time, men act in accordance with their collective convictions. You've seen those bumper stickers, if you can read this, thank a teacher. If you've ever exercised your First Amendment rights, thank a Christian, thank, thank a Bible-believing Christian. We invented it. The First Amendment is our contribution, right? And so you, you, can't, you can't come in late in the day and pretend that we are the enemies of free speech when we are the ones who put it on the map. Well, there you go. Wow. So don't, you know, wow. they've taken a chainsaw to the orchard. Uh, it's time for us to plant some new trees, right? Mm. And is that, I mean, I had not really heard that stance before about the First Amendment being yeah. explicitly the Christian contribution. I mean, is yeah. that pretty well-founded? Yeah, so this guy, his his name's Doug Wilson. He's actually brilliant. He's very, very, like the breadth and depth of his knowledge of the the history of this country, Western civilization, and biblical theology is just is, is crazy. But yeah, I, I would recommend going and, and reading Oz Guinness's book on mm. Last Call for Liberty. He really talks about the history of how those ideas came about, how they were grounded in, actually, he says in, in uh, covenantalism, they came through Eng the English common law, mm. uh, who the people, the crafters of that were looking directly at the, uh, I think it was the Mosaic Covenant, and mm -hmm. drawing on their common law from that. And that's what was picked up later on by the crafters of, you know, the Declaration, the Constitution, through John Locke and others. But, yeah, the idea was a, is a, was a direct child of the Judeo-Christian worldview. Wow. And, and, you know, just as when, when Christianity spread and was done rightly, it, it tended to increase literacy. It brought education, mm -hmm. it brought health, it brought education, all these, you know, the universities were founded on that principle. It brought liberty. Now, there were times, of course, where it was, you know, they went away from biblical principles and they did things the wrong way. Part of the Reformation was to get back to those principles and to, through the Reformation, these ideas began to spread again throughout mm -hmm. the world and the different civilizations it touched. And so that is a big topic, obviously. Yeah. But I think uh, this guy really does know what he's talking about. It'd be worth reading some of his materials. He's got books on on that subject as well. Yeah. But I love how, you, you know, just to, just to end our time today, thinking about how, you know, liberty began with the resurrection and true freedom for all the nations. You know, he brought yeah. liberty. He set the captives free. And that's what we stand on today is... is um, citizens of heaven right. who were who are proclaiming the kingship of jesus into this world these outposts that are, are yet to come under his reign and we proclaim we, we proclaim liberty and so i love that and, and i think we have to be involved um in these other mountains um right. to recover to not just let this get not not let liberty get trampled on right. in the name of neo-marxism <laughs> right we're so glad you joined us today on the Free Mind Podcast. Links to the different things we talked about today, some of the books, those documentaries, the Vody Bachman video, the previous Critical Theory episodes. You can find all those links in show notes. Can we appreciate a five-star rating and review in the Apple Podcasts app if you have a moment to do that. You can send us feedback at freemind.fm and then follow us on social media at freemind.fm on Instagram and Twitter and freemind.fm podcast on Facebook. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.
Spongebob.